Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm your podcast host, but I'm also a professor at a major university that really focuses on molecular biology and some of its best applications. And on the podcast, we've talked about biotechnology over the last five years now, and we've talked about crop genetic improvement. We've talked about applications in medicine. We've talked about diagnostics, all these different ideas, but we haven't applied it to the idea of species conservation. And especially some of the new tricks with gene editing, like all the CRISPR-Cas9 stuff, or I should say CRISPR-Cas, there's more than one Cas as we'll hear today, that there are opportunities for us to use these techniques to differentiate between species and analyze populations and gain resolution that's extremely important in making policy decisions around the conservation of different species. And so we're speaking today with Dr. Melinda Bayerwald. She's an environmental program manager at the California Department of Water Resources. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bayerwald. Thank you very much, Kevin. Happy to be here. I'm happy you're here too. Um, I'm I'm uh, embarrassed to say that we are almost to 250 episodes and I never really have talked about some of the many ways in which molecular biology techniques have been used to assist in these kinds of questions. And so super excited to talk to you today. So I really just started with a paper that I found in I think the journal Molecular Ecology that the first sentence really framed the problem of studying populations of, say, you know, in this case, uh, a fish, but studying populations and the structure of populations, especially in things that looked very similar phenotypically, had very similar visual characteristics. So why is this a problem? And can you have any good examples of, of things that maybe are really difficult to differentiate, but important to differentiate? Sure. Uh, so there are many species that you can simply look at them and feel really confident in what the species is. For example, most people can look at a lion and they can tell you pretty definitively, that's a lion. Um, but there are some situations in which species are really hard to distinguish from each other. So hard that even trained experts can't tell you really what it is in terms of morphological differences. And so mistakes can be made. Um, and so species can look extremely similar, for instance, at certain life stages, such as early life stages, like eggs or juveniles. One example is the eggs of sturgeon species. Um, I think that there are about 27 different sturgeon species in the world, and many of them are endangered due to overexploitation. The primary reason sturgeon are harvested is to collect the female eggs or roe to produce caviar. 
but the international trade of inter of endangered species, um, including their eggs, is strictly controlled. You can't tell many of the sturgeon species eggs apart from each other just by looking at them. They look practically identical. But you do need to know if an endangered species is being imported into your country. And so genetics can do that for you. In recent years, there is even a genetic test that's been produced for um, caviar. And so this will allow us to be able to screen at import sites for being able to tell if caviar comes from endangered species. And so that is really helpful. But there are definitely a lot of other examples that we could uh, cite for being able to have um, genetic inferences help us with species identification. And that includes non-invasive samples. Um, so for instance, hair snares or scat, like looking at fecal samples that are found on the ground, those you really can't always tell what species those came from. And that is something that genetics can really help with as well. Uh, and so all of these different things, either the, if it's a cryptic species where the species looks just really similar to each other, there's a lot of species that that is uh, commonly found for. For instance, there are shark species that look similar to each other, insect species that look similar to each other, and fish. And as I mentioned, even trained experts, they get it wrong. And, and the consequences can be big when you're dealing with endangered species. And so genetics can really help us with trying to uh, reduce the errors that we have with that. Well, I understand that idea that, you know, a lot of times morphological um, phenotypes are really difficult to sometimes work with because, as you mentioned, life stage, things change, or maybe sometimes environmental factors can play a role in reshaping the you know body of a fish or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But don't we have things like PCR markers and isozymes? And there's technology going back into the mid-1980s that allow us to differentiate these things. So why did we need to have improved ways to answer those questions? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Even before the 1980s, this, to my knowledge, um, ecologists have been working in collaboration with molecular biologists for decades. This began in the 1970s when alizymes were first used to look at genetic variation, and then it, it's really the field has not stayed stagnant at any point. In the 80s, it was. The mitochondrial DNA was used to look at phylogenetic relationships. Then in the 90s, microsatellites came on the scene to look at um, finer scale relationships, um, looking at different populations. And then really things um, began to take off in a big way in terms of high throughput analysis with SNPs, SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms in the 2000s. Um, and they became the most common preferred marker type um, at that point and remain so today. And the most important thing is that the nucleotide differences between species um, that you're trying to discriminate really needs to remain fixed. And so it doesn't vary within the species so that you can be confident. Okay, I have this nucleotide, so I know I have this species. And I'd like to point out that although... Um, you know, I've mentioned a couple different tools uh, for species identification. 
in reality, you could go into a lab across the United States today and find each one of these marker types still being used, maybe with the exception of alizymes. Most people don't want to use those today. <laughs> um, but, but for the others, they're still being used and, and there's valid reasons to use all of them. And so really the reason why we wanted to develop something new is because it has a couple advantages. Um, so it's still using SNPs. Um, so sh the Sherlock method that we're using, it still uses SNPs, but it detects them in a different way. And, and that's really the key here is how it detects them. And what it does is it allows us to do it in a much more rapid way um, and, and also allows us to do it um, in a way that we previously didn't realize that um, we could do it without um, doing DNA extraction, um, which hadn't previously been discovered before. So that was really exciting for us too. Well, that's a big deal if you can do this without, you know, take DNA distraction or DNA, <laughs> DNA distraction, yes, DNA extraction. DNA distraction. <laughs> no, I, no, I, I just was, uh, I just was thinking about, uh, you know, I've done all of those marker techniques. Uh, we did isozymes back in the eighties. We did RFLP work back in the eighties. Mm -hmm. We did, you know, microsatellites and SNPs and the whole bit. Yeah. So really what we're talking about just for listeners who uh, maybe don't know this technology very well. The SNP is really, as, as was mentioned, a single nucleotide polymorphism. So you look at fish A and fish B or plant A and plant B, and in the same gene, um, in both of them, you might have a very subtle difference in the genetic code. So just one letter that's different. And what's so cool about this is that if you think about that one letter in billions this kind of technique that you're using can go in and differentiate that one from the other. And, and that's what makes this so powerful. The one problem though, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is before you can use this technique, don't you have to know the sequence of both the different species that you would be surveying? Yeah, you, you absolutely do need to know the, the species sequence differences. And so that, that requires doing some sequencing, some upfront sequencing. Um, but the thing is, today we have so many different tools at our disposal to be able to get that fairly rapidly and inexpensively. Um, so there's been some new techniques that have come on the, the market, basically, that First of all, um, RADSeq, which is restriction-associated DNA sequencing, um, is a way to get high throughput, large amounts of sequencing data for basically any species um, very quickly. But additionally, now we can even get whole genome sequencing of individuals fairly inexpensively. Like uh, I remember, you know, 10 years ago, the idea of getting a species sequenced, an individual sequenced for $1,000 seemed like this crazy pipe dream that people were hoping for. And now it, it is a reality where you can, you can absolutely do that or even, even more so. And so the idea of, of having sequences at your disposal are, it, it's not a problem. And then, and then thing is, you don't usually do that for your everyday run-of-the-mill species identification, because what you want to do then is use these diagnostic species identification markers to then really scale it up, 
to get high throughput so that you can analyze a lot more samples. So you don't need that amount of information of like sequencing the entire genome just to know what the species is. So you get the information you need to answer the question that you have. Sometimes you do need the whole genome. It depends on your question. So really what you have is kind of a, what we may have colloquially referred to years ago as a DNA fingerprinting approach, just some sort of discrete little change that you know that you can use to differentiate the two. But it starts with DNA. How do you do this without a DNA extraction step? Yeah, so what I relied on for, let me let me first say that for getting the sequence, um, I had previously already had developed the markers that allowed me to know what the sequence differences were between the species that I was interested in um, developing uh, genetic assays for. And so that allowed me not to have to worry about extracting DNA. Otherwise, I would have absolutely extracted it in this case. So I had already had a, a paper that I had published that I had extracted the DNA and then developed what are referred to as TACMAN assays. Um, they're quantitative PCR assays that um, I had sequenced mitochondrial DNA and found um, differences. My collaborators and I had found differences in um, the mitochondrial cytochrome B region. And so that allowed me then to already know what to target um, that would be very robust in allowing me to distinguish these three different fish species that I was interested in distinguishing. And so then what I did was use that information to take that. And what I did in this case was to use it for what's called the Sherlock reaction. So for the original Sherlock paper, it was originally created for uh, pathogens in humans. That was the original paper. And so I found it in, I believe it was 2017 is the first time I, I saw this paper. And so it was for treating, um, it was for looking, it was a diagnostic assay for Zika and dengue yes. viruses. Mm -hmm. And, and so I was, I was interested in it because I, I've always been interested in the idea of taking something from one subfield and translating the use of it into another subfield. And I thought, wow, this, this is highly useful for human health. But why couldn't the same thing be used for ecology? But I thought, oh, but we'd want to, what would be, really be great for ecology is that ecologists are out in the field all the time. And what they really want is for the, I was, I was intrigued by the idea of the field deployability. And I thought but doing a DNA extraction out in the field would be something that field ecologists would not feel comfortable doing. So I thought if we could get around that step, that would be terrific. So, so that is something that I wanted to attempt to do, but realized it might be a bit of a moonshot. So what we did was to basically try a lot of different things. We did do some really quick, quick and dirty DNA extractions where you just, you lyse the cells with lysis buffer and heat it really rapidly um, for a couple minutes and centrifuge it. We did a, a host of different uh, 
trials trying to see. But then we did this one thing where we were just like, you know, it wouldn't hurt to not do any extraction. Let's just do, <laughs> let's just do that. It's not going to work, but let's just do it. Just to see. <laughs> And lo and behold, it worked. We were shocked. Like it really was one of those things where you just did it and you knew it wasn't going to work. And then you, you were amazed that that worked. And, and then we thought that must have been an error, but then we kept doing it and it kept working. And so, and I, and I can't to this day exactly tell you, Okay, and this is why it worked. I believe it may be even fish specific. So, so this is what we did. We took a sterile Q-tip and swab it across the the outside of the fish. And so, what we're doing when we do that is to collect the mucus of the fish. Um, there's there's a lot of mucus, yeah, as you know, fish are slimy, um, and so we collect the mucus of the fish, and then we put it into phosphate buffered saline. And then we took just one or two microliters of that and we put it into the Sherlock reaction straight away. And then, and then it, it does its thing and we, we get its um, fluorescence and read it. And so no extraction needed to get the result. Um, and so what that means basically is that the DNA is accessible right away. Um, and, and why that is, I believe it could be that the mucus itself is protecting. So it could be that there is, there are definitely cells in the mucus that um, are there, um, but there could also just be cells that have lysed already because our cells do just open up over time. They degrade and lice. And so that could also be present in the mucus. And this assay is so sensitive that it could be just picking up on DNA bits that are in the mucus as well. And that the mucus is forming a barrier with the fish and keeping some of that DNA next to the skin of the fish. That is a possibility. And I'd be interested in testing this with other mucus um, on other species as well. Like for instance, we have mucus, like our buccal, buccal swabs, you know, things like that. It'd be interesting to look at. Well, yeah, they just stuck a swab up my nose and into the back of my head to look for the COVID virus yesterday, you know? So, you know, I guess my mucus is also kind of uh, full of, full of goodies that they want to check. That is right. And as a matter of fact, Sherlock is now being used for COVID testing. So, um, yeah, it, it has a lot of implications for a lot of areas. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this Sherlock thing. So you get the DNA just by swabbing mucus from a fish, which is great for field collection. Awesome. So what does this Sherlock part mean? And you mentioned the original paper um, was originally designed to detect uh, Zika virus uh, maybe a couple of years ago now. But how does it work? If, if you can just kind of give us a back of the envelope idea, that'd be really great. Sure. Okay, so Sherlock itself stands for, it's an acronym, and so it stands for Specific High Sensitivity Enzymatic Reporter Unlocking. So I'm positive that they spent probably a fair amount of time <laughs> coming up with that acronym. <laughs> um, and, and so basically what happens is you need, as your starting material, nucleic acid. And so that can be either DNA or RNA. Um, and in our case, what we did was we used DNA. 
and we converted it into amplified RNA. And to do that, we used T7 transcription and recombinase polymerase amplification. And so that's really similar to a traditional PCR or um, uh, it's it's basically just amplifying your nucleic acid and, and making more copies of it. And so in this case, basically what it's doing is turning DNA into a amplified RNA. Um, and the reason why we needed to make it into RNA is because the CRISPR enzyme that we're using in this case is called um, Cas13A. So as you mentioned at the beginning, there are a lot of CRISPR enzymes. So the one that we always hear about a lot in the news, the one that whenever they talk about CRISPR, not always, but most of the time, what they're referring to is the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And that system is capable of gene editing. Um, And largely, it really has revolutionized a lot of different fields because it's capable of very specifically editing particular regions of the genome. And that can have huge consequences for, for health and agriculture, as you know, and that that's huge. Um, but it's not the only Cas enzyme out there. And the different Cas enzymes, so Cas stands for like CRISPR-associated proteins, have different functional roles that they're capable of doing. And the Cas13A has the ability to target RNA. And what it can do is when it finds a particular sequence, what it can do, um, so, so it finds it by having a CRISPR RNA or CRRNA that will guide it to an RNA of interest. So you make the CRRNA specific to your target RNA. So so in this case, let me use an example. I have a particular fish species that I know the sequence for it. And so what I do is I'll design um, my CRRNA or my CRISPR RNA to have the same sequence as the sequence for my species of interest, exact same sequence. And then what happens is that guide goes and it takes the Cas13A and it guides it to that site. And when it finds that site, then what happens is it cleaves it, it cuts it. And when it cuts it, it doesn't just cut that site because Cas13A then basically becomes activated. And then it will start cutting other single-stranded RNA in the reaction. So basically, and that's called promiscuous cleavage. Um, So it'll just start cutting other things randomly, um, other single-stranded RNA. And this collateral cleavage, basically what that it makes it do is it can be exploited. So let's say you put reporter RNA into the reaction. So reporter RNA is this thing where on one side, you've got this fluorescent probe on it. And on the other side, you have a quencher. So when they're together, your quencher makes it so the fluorescent probe doesn't light up. But if the two are no longer together, such as when the RNA reporter is cut, the fluorescence then will light up. So whenever the CRISPR 
um, Cas13A gets activated and it starts cutting the RNA in the reaction, then the fluorescence occurs. And so that only happens um, when the Cas13A finds the exact sequence that was targeted by the CRRNA. And so it's kind of complicated, but it's also really simple at the same time. You need that that very specific sequence. And once you have it, the reporter will get cut and fluoresce. Okay. Now, let me see if I got this right. So the first steps, you have the DNA that comes from the mucus. And the first steps is really just kind of an amplification step, it is. right? That's all, really all it is. Yep. And we don't need to get into the details of T7 polymerase and all that, but you, suffice it to say, you, you make a lot of molecules that represent the species of interest. Then you have a complementary little RNA, like a one that you make that is kind of the, um, uh, the, the, I guess the, you would say the sensor or the, um, you know, the bait that would go in, or I should say, um, let me think about that. You're, you're basically using this as the bait to catch the uh, sequence that you just amplified. Yeah, that if the two match, then it's a match. And then the presence of a Cas13 enzyme cuts it. And then Cas13 does something funny that once that first cut is made, that first cut happens, Cas13 says, I got to go out and look for anything that's similar. And then you have another synthetic RNA, which has the quencher in the probe, which are these uh, fluorescent entities and one that shuts off the fluorescent entity together. Then when that gets cut, it gets separated. Now you can detect the fluorescence. Is that kind of where we're going? That's exactly right. The only other thing that I would add to that is that the amplification, although you're, you know, it's one of those things where you're like amplification, it just happens. One cool thing about the amplification in this case is that it is isothermal. And what that means is it is at a single temperature. So typically when we do um, PCR, it cycles. And so you, you're changing the temperature and you're doing it with each cycle. You're, you're changing it usually three times. Um, and and that, takes, that takes a specialized instrument to do. In this case, because it's isothermal, it's all happening around human body temperature. And so basically you could do this reaction by holding it in the palm of your hand. Um, and that allows it also to have increased ability to be field deployable. It's at a single temperature. Oh, yeah. See, so that's really cool. I remember seeing the isothermal thing mentioned in the original papers and didn't really think about why that was relevant. But that's a really good uh, attribute of this assay for your application. So very cool. Yeah. So this is the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Melinda Bayerwald. We're discussing this idea of using gene editing tools in studying species conservation and how ecology can benefit from the newest molecular techniques. This is the mole- this is the molecular. <laughs> this is the Talking Biotech podcast and we'll be back in just a minute. Going into year 6, we want the Talking Biotech podcast to be more about you, the listener. Send us your requests for guests. Send us the questions that you want answered. 
voice your concerns. Join us at the guest host. You see, we have built a platform. It's independent from universities and companies, and we control where this science show goes. The goal of this podcast has always been to raise the understanding of technology as it works in food, farming, and medicine, so that all of us can together combat misinformation, the copious filth that plagues the internet. We are here to help the environment, the food insecure, those that can have a normal life after a medical breakthrough, and of course, the farmers that feed us. These are the values that make the show continue. So your job is an easy one. Share the podcast on social media. Tell a friend. Tell two friends if you have that many, Science Geek. Tell people you don't really like. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that we continue to share the stories of science, the stories of technology, and the applications that will make our short time as a film of life on the crust of the Earth a little more special. So thank you for listening. Send your ideas to kevinfolta at gmail.com. Share the link in social media. And now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Melinda Bayerwald, and she's speaking to us today about the idea of using gene editing hardware in species conservation. And she's the environmental program manager at the California Department of Water Resources and uh, has used this in a way to start understanding the structure of fish populations, whereas we used to use maybe other types of techniques. But let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, we've used PCR for years to connect a criminal to a cigarette butt or a, or, you know, or criminal to a crime via cigarette butt or by DNA on on a postage stamp back when we used to lick those things. And um, why is this method, you mentioned the you know equipment before, but why is the Sherlock method an improvement over PCR-based in terms of, say, sensitivity? Well, actually, it isn't an improvement in terms of, it, it, it is about the same, depending on what you're doing. So it is, in terms of sensitivity, Um, We have found that when we do what is termed a one-pot reaction, um, that basically means that the amplification step and the CRISPR targeting and cleavage all happen in the same reaction, that the Sherlock is actually less sensitive than a quantitative PCR assay. And so the qPCR um, could detect down to three copies of DNA, which is about as sensitive as you can get. Um, well, the Sherlock one pot detected down to about 300 copies. So it is not as sensitive. Um, and we use mitochondrial DNA though. So I do want to point out that that means that you'd likely only need about one cell even to get 300 copies. However, in situations where increased sensitivity is needed, Sherlock can be conducted sequentially. So basically what that means is that you do the amplification step. And then in a separate reaction, you could do the CRISPR detection, and that brings the sensitivity up to the same level as a qPCR reaction. 
And so bringing the two together is more convenient for us. And typically we don't usually need that high of a level of sensitivity when you have a, a, an organism in hand. It's only when you're dealing with um, very low quantities of DNA or RNA that you're really concerned about sensitivity. So something like environmental DNA, that's when you might want to consider um, ramping up your sensitivity. Or as you said, forensics, you'd want to consider ramping up your sensitivity. You might want to consider um, either going to a more traditional PCR or doing the two-pot reaction instead. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. The original paper, I think the authors mentioned they do this, they can detect at the atomolar scale. Correct. <laughs> I know. That, I didn't even look that up because I was like, wait, how low is that? Because typically I only go down to picomolar when I consider things. Um, so yeah. Atomolar yeah, so, is extremely small. Yeah. So, you know, nanomolar, you're looking at 10 to the minus nine and then picomolar, you're going to 10 to the minus 12 mm -hmm. and then femtomolar, right? You go yeah. fif minus 15 and then atomolar to the 10 to the minus 18. Yes. And, and so that's, that's like, um, a billion billion. Yeah. That's a billion billion. It's crazy. <laughs> It is crazy how small. Yes. And, 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 and so, then, they, then when they discuss that, that is in relation to the two pot that I was mentioning that you can get that kind of sensitivity. Yeah. No, that's super cool. That's really neat. So when you do this uh, technique, now you've actually used this technique to answer an important question. So what is the question that you sought to answer? Yeah. So I work in the San Francisco estuary where many of our native fish species are declining in abundance. And the agency I work for is, as you mentioned, the California Department of Water Resources, and we're required to conduct ecological monitoring throughout the year to continue water operations that export water from our region into agricultural areas of the Central Valley, as well as cities of Southern California for drinking water. And a lot of people depend on this water reliably coming to them, um, but exports need to be reduced if substantial numbers of threatened or endangered fish species are found near the pumps that export the water. And so there's three fish species which can be difficult to visually um, distinguish from each other, particularly at younger life stages. And uh, one of them is U.S. threatened and California endangered. And that one is called the Delta smelt. There's also the long fin smelt, and that is a California threatened species. And then the third is a non-native from Japan, and it's called the Wakasagi. So there's these three fish species, and they um, are particularly difficult to distinguish from each other at earlier life stages, such as the larval life stage. Delta smelt in particular is nearing extinction in the wild. And so they're being able to accurately identify the species in the field is a very high value um, since it is highly sensitive to collection, Delta smelt is with high mortality rates when it is captured. And so field sampling needs to cease um, if we collect Delta smell oftentimes. 
And with the field deployability of Sherlock, that would enable us to conduct rapid genetic ID, allow us to know if indeed a, a Delta smelt or a long fin was caught versus a Wakasagi. Um, and, and a recent paper did find that there are indeed field misidentifications in the larval life stage, even by very experienced field taxonomists. Well, figure one of your paper shows these three end to end, and they look remarkably similar. And I know someone who's an ichthyologist would look at them and say, oh, yeah, those are like night and day, you know, but it's like when pictures of people's kids, you know, if they're yours, it matters, but otherwise it just look like some kid. But the three fish here are so similar. And I don't know that I could tell a Delta smell from a Wakasagi, even, you know, even you know, visually, I mean, they're, they're looking, unless you knew some specific morphological trait to really key off of. So I see why this kind of thing would be so, so useful, but is it, is how you, how definitive is it? I mean, do you really get a hundred percent separation between the two and what happens if they hybridize together? What, how does that confound the detection? Yeah, that's a great question. So it truly is definitive. Um, the Sherlock is capable of single nucleotide difference specificity. So we we have analyzed um, minimally at least 40 samples um, across the different species ranges for each one of the different species. We have 100% accuracy in terms of being able to distinguish them. We also selected, oh, I forget if it was it was well over 20 different species throughout the estuary um, of other species just to double check and make sure that no other species came up positive for these different assays, these Sherlock assays for these species. And these, these are remarkably accurate assays. They, they um, show no hint of a signal from any other species. And so we have absolute confidence in them. Um, and, and in terms of the, the specificity, um, we, we believe that um, we have no problems um, with, with that. Hybridization does occur, in, in, and it particularly is known to occur between Delta Smelt and Wakasagi. And although it's believed to occur not at very high levels, it has been found. And interestingly, though, all cases of hybridization have been found to occur that it is um, the female in all cases has been found to be Wakasagi and the male um, parent is the Delta smelt. And that is incredibly lucky for us. And the reason why that is, is because the uh, marker that we use is a mitochondrial marker. And for those that aren't, don't know, mitochondrial markers are maternally inherited. And so what that means is that the marker comes from the mother. And so if we get a positive on our assay, what that means is that it will show up as being Wakasagi if it is a hybrid. 
Um, and so even though it's it's not truly a pure wakasagi, it won't come up positive for Delta smelt. And that's actually the important thing when you're considering for endangered species that a hybrid would not come up as being the endangered species. Hybrids are not protected under the Endangered Species Act. Um, and so although it is one of the things that we would like to be able to detect the hybrids and this assay currently is not capable of doing so, we would need to increase the assay number. Um, we are happy that we will not have false positives and say that a hybrid is a Delta smelt when it in fact is not. That's that's a really great point. And I, I didn't think of this before when I looked at the paper, but you know that, that figure that you allude to where you test against all these different types of fish and show that there's very strong specificity, uh, that tied to the fact that this is a maternally inherited marker, um, it makes a lot of sense to really describe uh, how you get one or the other. I, is there such a thing as, um, uh, uh, I can't think what they even call it in plants now, uh, where or heteroplasty, where you have um, multiple mitochondrial genomes potentially present in a single cell, does that happen in animals? It does happen, um, and it happens in fish. Um, and but it is it is not considered extremely common, um, and and you kind of have to search for it to find it. But but it absolutely could could happen. Um, but but yes. At, I have not, I've not looked for it in this case. Um, yeah. So we'd have to search. No, it's still, it's a really nice technique for this particular question. And it was a really impressive paper in that regard. Plus the fact that you didn't have to do the DNA prep. Um, and actually the rest of the paper shows that the different ways in which you've surveyed to be able to detect um, uh, the DNA or the sequence of interest. The, the one thing that, that that does come up in this kind of discussion, though, is that in applying this into, let's say, allele frequencies of nuclear DNA in an eco ecological population, this is where you may start to see confounding data from things like hybrids, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, therefore, what you would need to do if it was hybrids is you would need to have more than a single assay in that case. Um, and, and in that for nuclear and, and for others, what you need to do really is to scale up and do multiplexing or, or other, or, or choose a different type of assay. Um, if you, if you wanted to start really investigating finer scale, um, hybridization events and other things like that. And, um, for Sherlock, there actually is the ability to, to look at doing multiplexing, our particular paper did not show that, but but that is a capability. Are there any other examples that come to mind where this kind of technique is being used to look at populations of fish or maybe any other kind of bird or other population? You mean the CRISPR technology itself? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for the Sherlock itself, um, our paper was the first to use it um, for ecological um, monitoring, um, in any context. Um, but for CRISPR, there is another type of system that is called detector and another, um, lab has used it to, for environmental DNA. Um, and to my knowledge, those are the only two papers, um, currently out that have used CRISPR for ecology. 
The beauty of this is that it seems to have been conceived, at least in your hands, with application in a field setting. So what are some of the other attributes that make this particularly amenable for field research? Yeah, there's actually a couple things that make it really useful for field deployment. One is that you can get your results extremely rapidly. What we found is that from the start of the reaction to the end takes 30 minutes or less. So you can have your results so quickly. Additionally, minimal equipment is needed. Um, You could use a handheld fluorescent reader to get your results. But we also experimented with lateral flow strips. These are really akin to a pregnancy test strip. And so what you would do is you could hold, for instance, the reaction tube in your hand and then take a couple microliters of it out and put it or or even just dip the, the flow strip into the reaction tube itself and let the reaction um, you know flow up the strip. And then you look at the band and see, did you get it or not? And then you'll know if it's positive. Um, the isothermal amplification that we talked about, you know, at the body temperature, that makes it really useful for the field. And additionally, we're exploring lyophilizing or drying down the samples. Um, and that will really stabilize the reaction. So then what you would do is just add your sample and put it at 37 degrees or body temperature. And that will enable field biologists with little molecular training to be able to do this assay. What we're interested in doing is making testing kits for them to go out into the field and not need a geneticist around to tell them the answer to what species they just collected. And then they can find out for themselves in just 30 minutes without ever needing to leave the field. And that's really powerful. You know, this would be really great for something like plant breeding, which is, you know, the folks I work with, because right now you have to make DNA, come back and you know do your SNP-based assay or your, you know, microsatellite or whatever, that if we knew that there was a very strong association between a SNP and a trait, which there is with a lot of the traits we look at, we could probably do this right out in the field and come up with the data on site. And so I really was excited, really excited to think about the applications here, not just in in the ecological framework, but how we could apply this to increase the throughput of any kind of activity that requires SNP detection. So really cool stuff. I agree. I think it really opens the door to being able to look at SNP detection in a wide variety of different environments and take it out of the lab and also take it out of the hands of geneticists where people that don't have that specialized training, if we can move it in, it's so easy to be able to look at a color detection or fluorescent detection and be able to do it anywhere. And and I see that this technology could move us in that direction. And so it's a really exciting time. Dr. Melinda Bayerwald, thank you so much for joining me. This was a fascinating look at how this technology is growing and now moving beyond just the traditional applications of gene editing and actually going to answer questions about populations. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you very much for your continued support as we enter our sixth year of podcasting. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling a friend. Thank you for all your support on the Patreons. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast.
presents the personal view of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.